peace to you. From God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. In January of 1957, Elvis Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show for the third and final time. He was shown only from the waist up, even when he did his gospel rendition of Peace in the Valley. Ed told the audience, this is a real decent, fine boy. We've never had a pleasanter experience on our shoe with a big name than we've had with you. You're thoroughly all right. In the same month of that same year, uh, Whammo produced its very first Frisbee. Lots of other things happened that year worth remembering, too. Perry Mason premiered on TV, and he's still on. 1957. There's another event that went pretty much unnoticed, that, but would later make a big splash on the retail scene. A man named Harold von Braunhut walked into a pet store and noticed a bucket filled with brine shrimp. He didn't know it at the time, but that pail of fish food was a particular species of brine shrimp found in salt lakes, and it was going to be his ticket to the Millionaire Club. That tiny, tiny shrimp had some pretty unique biological peculiarities. It could exist in a state of suspended animation for years. They can actually shut down their metabolic processes in the absence of water. In the event the lake dries up, for example, they can survive in their protective casings. But when you add water, their protective shells hatch, revealing a tiny translucent creature with one eye. They develop two more when they reach maturity, um, and they can breathe out of their feet. Males have little whiskers under their chins, and females can self-fertilize eggs. Now, to most people, they were just fish food. But von Braunhut saw that something different. He saw a way to capture children's imaginations by selling what he called a bowl full of happiness. He reasoned that if he could sell the dehydrated eggs in the mail, then have them come to life in water using his secret nutrient formula, he felt certain that kids would be amazed, especially since, aside from the popular ant farms, you know, kids' toys in those days weren't all that imaginative. Well, he followed through with his idea, spending years in his barn working on a mail-order package that consisted of one packet to condition tap water, one packet of nutrients, including yeast and algae, and one packet of shrimp eggs. <clears throat> Owing to their amazing ability to emerge from something that looked like Kool-Aid powder, he dubbed his product Instant Life and began approaching retailers in the early 1960s. Unfortunately, his guaranteed hit wasn't. There was already a product on the market sold by the Whammo company called Instant Fish that used African killifish eggs that could remain dormant in dried mud between rainy seasons. <clears throat> it was a great idea. Even, there was even a greater idea, maybe, because what you actually got was a rainbow-colored goldfish uh, when, it, when it hatched. But uh, the company couldn't keep up with the initial demand. And then, when they didn't always hatch as expected, this side of East Africa, they were pulled from the market. Well, that product's failure stuck in the minds of retailers. And when Instant Life came along, well, von Braunhut's company paid the price. And it began to look more like instant failure, while Whammo moved on to things like hula hoops. But von Braunhut wasn't deterred. He decided to pitch his target directly to uh, uh, his, his audience by placing ads in comic books. 
rebranding his product as Sea Monkeys. And the rest of the story, as they say, while much more complicated, is history. Now, Von Braun had eventually added x-ray specs to his line, which implied that the young wear might be able to see through clothing. Now, judging from the pair I ordered, they didn't work. They were just a pair of cardboard glasses that overlapped, uh, with overlapping feathers that you look through that tried to give the impression of an x-ray. So where was I going with this? Oh, yeah, Jesus and instant life. A lot of people might recognize John 16 from our reading this morning. It's one of those Bible verses that can be right on the tip of your tongue. Most people who attend church regularly, they can probably give you the gist of it. It's been called the gospel in a nutshell. And there's truth in that, although others might tell you that the only thing that really fits into a nutshell is a nut. Uh, they worry that if we, if we get John 13, then we'll think we've pretty much got the whole Christian message down and as if the rest of the Bible were simply a commentary. They make a valid point. In full context, you have to really have to start reading at verse 1 of chapter 3. And our lesson this morning only begins at verses 14 and 15, where Jesus makes a reference to a, uh, an incident from the Old Testament involving a serpent in the wilderness. In fact, many people who might know John 3.16 probably won't have a clue about what Jesus is talking about in verses 14 or 15, or why the story of a wilderness serpent even serves as an introduction to verse 16. Of course, that verse is talking about God's uh, love for the world and how he sent his son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life, instant life, really, when you first come to faith in him, by his redeeming work for us, by his uh, atoning death, and by his glorious resurrection. From our gospel lesson today, what do you suppose people would assume about the wilderness serpent Jesus was talking about? Just from the gospel lesson. You know, my guess would be another appearance by that, that same serpent that tempted Adam and Eve back in the garden. But they'd be wrong. This serpent is not a tempter, but a savior. The story of the wilderness serpent can be found in our Old Testament reading from the book of Numbers. But first, let's set the stage for our gospel reading. It comes from a late-night encounter Jesus has with a questioning man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was one of the teachers of the religious law, uh, the law that pervaded every facet of people's lives in those days. He was a local leader in the church, and he was troubled. Now, the Pharisees knew their Old Testament backward and forwards. They knew the books of the law. They knew the books of the prophet, the wisdom books, the poetry books. And they knew that a lot of verses contained in that pointed to the Messiah that God would send one day to rescue his people. And as a rule, the church leaders just didn't think much of Jesus. They certainly didn't see him as the Messiah, but they did see him as a threat to their authority and their way of life. And even their safety, if word got back to the emperor that the people of Judea began to see this man as uh, the Messiah they'd waited so long for, maybe, maybe even a new king of the Jews. He taught with authority, he worked miracles, and he criticized the church leaders for being all pious on the outside but spiritually dead on the inside. There was a lot of friction between them, and eventually he would get the Lord crucified. Nicodemus wasn't sure what to think. And so he comes to Jesus in the dark of night when no one is likely to see him. The way the 
church leaders were rejecting Jesus out of hand just didn't seem to sit well with him. He has a long talk with the Lord. They talk about salvation. Uh, they talk about the need to be born again, you know, spiritually this time. And then Jesus gave this Bible teacher another sign to watch for. He reminds him of our Old Testament lesson. It might not have been as familiar as the parting of the Red Sea when God's people were running from their lives after escaping from slavery in Egypt. But it comes from those same, same wilderness years, the wandering years on their way to the promised land. In the book of Numbers, the people of Israel are still on the move. In fact, 38 years before, their parents and their grandparents stood on almost this exact same spot, not far from their goal. They, spent, sent, they sent spies ahead to sort of check out the, the land. After 40 days, the spies returned with news and a single cluster of grapes so large it took two men to carry it. The land flowed with milk and honey, they said, but unfortunately the inhabitants looked as oversized as the fruit. Other than young guns Joshua and Caleb, uh, the spies were filled with fear, and now, of course, so were God's people. They were afraid to enter the land and take it for their own. They asked Moses, why did you bring us out here just to kill us? God had said, here it is. Go for it. I'll be with you. And now they were saying, no, I don't think so. And so God said, in effect, okay, so then think about this. You want to rebel? You want to doubt my care after all the miracles I showed you on the way here from Egypt? The plagues, the angel of death, the parting of the Red Sea, and all the rest? Okay, then, no promised land for you. You can turn around and wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for each day the spies were gone. Make your soup from stone. Your children will inherit your land, but not you. Well, that 40 years was about up in our lesson today. The children were the parents now. They'd grown up in the wilderness under the care of God. Under normal circumstances, circumstances that would normally have killed people, they'd been sustained by God. Their clothing and their shoes didn't wear out. Uh, they, when they couldn't find water, God turned a rock into a faucet. When there was no food, God sent them manna, a miraculous uh, flaky bread-like substance that appeared on the ground like frost every morning, just waiting to be gathered up and cooked. When he got tired of manna, he added quail to the menu. But it's been a long, long time, almost a lifetime. They're tired. They're hungry for the fresh foods of their new land. There was just one last thing to do. Get permission from the king of Edom, who's a kind of a shirt-tail relation, to cut north through his country on their last stretch, using what was called the King's Highway, a fairly easy trek. Only the king put up a road close sign, and then he brought out the National Guard to enforce it. Well, Moses promised the king that his people would stick to the road, that they wouldn't eat anything off his land, and if their cattle drank any Edomite water, he'd reimburse them for it. Now, the Bible doesn't say why the king balked, but it might have been said something, at least had something to do with the fact that there were over 2 million Israelites by now. That's the number part of the book of Numbers refers to a census they took. It doesn't take much imagination to see them as the king might have. You know, the nightmare relatives who came to visit and then never left, worried by their sheer numbers that they might just decide to stay and take over. 
You know, if you looked across out across the plain like he must have, and as far as you could see were hungry, desperate Israelites, what would you do? You know, knowing what you know about people and all. Would you put your own citizens at risk? Your family? Would you trust Moses' promise, even if it meant wrongly placed trust might cost you your kingdom? Probably not. So even though the promised land lay due north, the Israelite nation had to backtrack due south down to the Red Sea again in order to get around the southern border of Eden so um, they could make a left turn and head north once more. Well, the thought of this journey didn't sit well with the people. Not at all. And, and, and you know, they, they, they began to rail at Moses, their leader. They knew it was going to mean even more time in the desert and more of that same old, old food that had once been a good news miracle and saved their lives, but, you know, had long since become too much of a good thing. And so, for not the first time, they cry out to Moses, why did you bring us here out of Egypt in the first place? Into this wilderness, there's no water, no food, and we're sick to death of this manna. Well, when they got angry with Moses, who were they really getting angry at? At God. Sure, they were angry at the thought of spending any more time in the desert, and sure, they were angry and frustrated that they were, and they were hungry for a new food in their new land, only to have the rug pulled out from under them at the last minute. But the games they were playing with God pushed him to the tipping point. You've been there. We all have. And with a lot less reason than these people had, we got angry. And we rebelled against God. Now forget all about the, the trials and the tough times he's gotten us through in the past. What about this time? You know, it's almost like we blame him for our circumstances, isn't it? Like it's his fault that the world is in a perfect place. But he's not the problem. He's never been the problem. You know, God is, is love. God is goodness. God is hope in the wilderness times. But we have to get angry at somebody, so in our anger, we reject him. I'm so mad at you, Lord. I don't need you, and I'm tired of you, and what did you ever do for me anyway? And we begin to sound just like those Israelites, unappreciative and rebellious. God protected these people for so long, and now they're so close to the finish line. They were out of patience, and they were out of trust. But it wasn't, you know, God's fault that the king of Eden wouldn't allow them to to pass through his country. It wasn't God's fault at all. And so God's about had it with his people. They've forgotten or denied everything he'd done for them, every promise he ever made to them, and so he sends them a little reality check, an attitude adjustment, sort of. The Israelite camp was invaded by snakes. Now, there are about 40 varieties of snakes in that region even today. But these snakes were equipped with a deadly poison that burned like fire when they bit. And people started dying. Didn't take long to figure out that they needed God. And they go back to Moses, begging him to do something. They knew that Moses had God's ear. They said, we've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord, and we've spoken against you as representatives. Pray to the Lord that he'll take the serpents away. Moses could have said no. Could have said, you've had enough chances, and now I'm finished with you too. But he didn't. He prayed to God. He prayed for his people. And God, who had every right to uh, answer his prayers with silence, spoke. 
He said, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. He was offering them instant life from what would have been certain death by simply believing his word. It seems kind of like an odd thing for him to have Moses do, doesn't it? Except in our gospel lesson this morning, Jesus explains that it was a foreshadowing of his own crucifixion. They didn't have that information. They had to take God's word on faith. And so Moses made a serpent out of bronze and he set it on a pole. And the people who believed Moses' words from God and looked on it, on the, the bronze snake when they were bitten, lived. And those who didn't believe died. Now, Nicodemus would have known this story well. It was part of his nation's history. Jesus tells him, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him has eternal life. The Son of Man was one of those terms that Jesus liked to use for himself. It was uh, kind of a reference to his being true God and true man, being divine and human. That was Jesus' advice to the Pharisee who wanted so badly to believe. Look up. Look up to the cross for answers. And Nicodemus would remember, and he would come to faith. He was the one who supplied 100 pounds of spices to prepare Jesus' body for burial when he was taken down from the cross. And surely he remembered the Lord's words from that night. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The dialogue had stopped. And Jesus was using that moment to teach Nicodemus about God's eternal plan of salvation. God so loved the world that he had created, even though the crown of that creation had gone back bad and ruined it all. Our sins didn't stop God from loving us. And God knew them all, from the least to the worst. He loved the whole world anyway, and he excluded no one. See, God's love doesn't dream passively. God's love brings results. He offered the ultimate sacrifice for the sin of the world that he loved. The ultimate sacrifice. So we can see God's heart in Christ on the cross. We see God's promise of eternal life in the empty tomb on Easter morning. He even sends his spirit to work the faith in our hearts we need to believe. It's a gift we only have to accept. It means instant life from certain death. Eternal life, but believe it and live. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.